I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and it's really a joy to be able to share with you today. Um, some of you may remember as a child, or you may have had a child or grandchild, and the first time as a toddler they really saw themselves in a mirror, and they just got really kind of drawn into that and fascinated because they're, they're drawing a sense of who they are, a sense of identity by looking in that mirror, and sometimes making all kinds of funny faces, it's kind of a riot to see it happen. And uh, actually, sometimes we don't outgrow that. Um, we have grandchildren that we FaceTimed with um, when we were, lived out of the area here. And they would be, you're talking to them on FaceTime, and you think that they're looking at you, but they're really looking at themselves, making all kinds of hilarious faces and things like that. I, I think children really do get a sense, uh, a partial sense of identity from looking in their parents' eyes and their parents' faces and what we reflect back to them. But in a greater sense, I think we really need to draw our sense of identity from looking into the face of God. Identity is how you answer the question, who am I? It's how you define your authentic sense of self. It's the recognition of who you are. It's your self-awareness that really controls how you relate to other people around you. It's the distinguishing characteristic or personality of you as an individual. Your identity is absolutely important. David Benner wrote a book called The Gift of Being Yourself, and he defines identity as who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. But the problem is often we feel the pressure to define ourselves through our jobs, financial status, successes, grades, appearance, or what other people say about us and many other means. But what happens, uh, Brenner says, when we, uh, to our identity when we experience failure or we lose someone's favor? We become burned out on our jobs or our area of service. The very foundation of our identity is shaken and altered, resulted in us hustling to define ourselves by something or someone else. A stable sense of self cannot fully exist when we place our identity in external things. When circumstances change, our identity constantly changes too. We may receive an overwhelming amount of messages telling us to define ourselves by those external measures. But what would it look like to base our identity on the way God sees us? Benner states that an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who's deeply loved by God. When you think about identity, we all tend to do this. We all tend to draw our sense of identity from our job or our career. But what happens when you're unemployed? What happens when you're frustrated with your job or you face retirement? Or we draw, um, we draw our identity from our marriage status. But what happens if you're single or your spouse dies or you go through an unwanted divorce or you're facing marriage challenges? Sometimes we draw our identity from our parenting. I don't suggest that because children are born sinful and selfish, no matter what we think, because they're just like us. And so they tend, to, they tend to reflect that. And what happens when you face the empty nest or a child kind of takes a, a turn and wanders? Your, your gender or your sexual identity, we, we just see the brokenness that comes from making that the basis, the confusion, or social categories that are constantly shifting. Ethnicity and race can, um, can trap us or give us a false sense of self. Or finances, your money, your bank account. But, but that can bring greed 
It can also bring real brokenness when the stock market changes or you lose money. Your education. You can have, you can have pride in your education, the degrees you have. But friends, that, is a, that actually is not a sense of self. Or what about your health or your appearance? What happens if all of a sudden you have an accident? And what happens if you're handicapped? What takes place as we all get older, folks, and let's just face it, we don't look the way we used to. So all of those things are, lead to a superficial sense of self that never roots us or stabilizes our identity. Have you ever gone to like a carnival or a place where they had funny house mirrors? And you look at the mirror and sometimes they make you look really, really tall and sometimes they make you look really, really fat or they're just really the twisted, distorted look or they're cracked. All of those things I just listed are funny house mirrors. And when you look in those funny house mirrors, you will never get an authentic sense of identity of who you are because you're looking in all the wrong places. We all do that. Where can we find an identity that is stable, that is unchanging? Where can we get that sense of self that is really rooted? Friends, I want to suggest to you, you can only know yourself by first knowing God. You can only know and have a true sense of identity by first knowing Christ. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, right at the beginning of the Bible, God says this. This is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having a conversation with one another. And God says, let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness. In the next verse, he says this, that God, so God created man in his image after his likeness. Male and female, he created them. So one thing that's true about every human being you will ever meet, including every person here this morning, you are created as an image bearer of God. And more than anything else, that defines you. Because you are created to reflect God's likeness and for relationship with God. So the most basic foundational thing about being human is to be an image bearer from God. Interesting, Jesus said this. He said in Matthew 10, 29, that, that it's only in losing ourselves that we find ourselves. It's, it's almost paradoxical, but, but it's in self-sacrifice that we find our self-identity. So the more you chase after your identity in all the wrong places, the more twisted and more insecure that you're going to be in terms of your sense of who you are. That's why I really like the person of John the Baptist, because from him I learn where to really root my identity and how to do that. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. And Pastor Joel uh, really laid a great foundation for our study in the Gospel of John as we really uh, find, get to know who God is through finding out who Christ is. But in the midst of the text that Pastor Joel preached last week, John the Baptist was mentioned several times. And I want you to just back up there and see it, starting with verse 6. So after he talks about Christ being the Word and the Creator, he says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness of the light. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
Here's my question. Why in the introduction to the Gospel of John does, does John, the apostle, weave together in that narrative three mentions of John the Baptist? I want to suggest to you, because John the Baptist not only had a key role as the forerunner, but he really shows us that it's only in knowing Christ that we can know ourselves. It's only in your relationship with Christ, with the triune God, that you can know who you are. And John, it we're told, was not that light. He was a reflection of the light. Like the sun is a source of light and the moon reflects the light, Jesus was the light source and the life source, and John was simply a reflection of that. So John had a clear sense of his identity because he knew who Christ was. And because he knew who Christ was, he knew who he was. And there's three benefits that John had because of that that we're going to see in the passage this morning. John had the benefit of humility, security, and purpose. And we all need that. We absolutely need it more than we realize we need it. I want you to look with me that John had, this, had, a, had humility because he had a clear sense of who he was. So jump down with me to verse 19. In the, in the narrative that we're going to look at, it's a Q&A kind of a, a, a passage where John is being interviewed by the Jews who, in verse 19, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That's the basic question of our identity. Who are you? We look down at verse 24, and we're told that those who came were from the Pharisees. So John is baptizing people out by the Jordan River, and word gets back to Jerusalem, and this group that are called priests, Levites, Pharisees, they, they come out to investigate John, to ask him questions about who he is. Apparently, they're sent from the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the Jews. And they're, they're, they want to investigate, they want to question John, interrogate him, to find out, who do you claim to be? And what's this all about? You have to understand, the Sanhedrin had the responsibility of overseeing the Jewish nation and, and, and so many different roles, including the religious roles. And they were, they were to take the responsibility to make sure they didn't have someone out there teaching false doctrine or people being false messiahs or um, people that were starting revolutions because even before the time of Christ, there had been some false messiahs. There had been false teachers who had led revolutions against the Roman, um, the Roman occupation that led to a bloodbath against the nation. So the Sanhedrin's pretty concerned when they start hearing, oh no, there's another prophet out there by the Jordan River, we need to go check this out. So they, they send these emissaries out to investigate. And their question is simply this, who are you? Notice that John's first response is to talk about who he is not. Kind of um, interesting, because this demonstrates his humility. A clear view of our identity helps us focus on who we're not. So they ask him that. John, in verse 20, confessed, did not deny, but he, he, didn't, he confessed. He said, I am not the Christ. Christ means Messiah, anointed one. It speaks of the one who came to fulfill all the prophecies in the Old Testament, and it speaks particularly about the fact that he is anointed to three key offices or roles, prophet, priest, and king. That Jesus came and, as the Messiah, he would be the prophet who was greater than Moses. He'd be a priest 
greater than Aaron, who would fulfill all the, 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 the sacrificial system, and that he'd be a king greater than Solomon and David. He's prophet, priest, and king. So the first thing that John says, I am not the Messiah. I don't make a claim to be the Messiah. They may have gone, okay, got that taken care of. By the way, sometimes we can have a messianic complex when we think we need to solve everybody's problem. I just want to go on record right here and say to you, we are not the Messiah. Jesus is. And he alone is. And humility comes from knowing who you're not. The second thing John says, I am, they ask him, what are you? Are you Elijah? Because there had been a prophecy in Malachi that Elijah was going to come back. Elijah didn't die. He was caught up to heaven. And actually, John the Baptist's ministry was, was very much like that of Elijah. And he kind of fulfills that. But he said, are you really Elijah back from the dead? He says, no, I'm not, I'm not Elijah. And they said, um, are you that prophet? Interesting, there are prophets all the way back to Abel in the book of Genesis. Abraham is called a prophet. But in Moses, the prophetic office gets established, those who were God's mouthpiece. And, and Moses in Deuteronomy 18 talks about how you can tell a true prophet or a false prophet. That's, by the way, if weathermen were in the Old Testament as a prophet last week, they would have been death by stoning. That's what would have happened to them. So a, a prophet, a prophet, he said, if, if, if they don't fulfill every prophecy, then, then they have to be killed. And Moses says, there's coming a prophet who's going to be like me, only greater than me. And here in John chapter 1, John actually points to Jesus and says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's simply saying, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the one who is that prophet. So John says, I'm not that prophet. I may be a prophet, but I am not that prophet. Now you can imagine as John is doing this, and he's saying who he's not. I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. At this point, they're starting to get a little frustrated. So look at their response. Verse 22, they said to him, who are you? What's your identity? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And in other words, we can't go back to the Sanhedrin empty-handed. You need to give us something, John, so we can go back and we can explain who you are. You've told us who you're not. Tell us who you are. So humility, friends, is the first thing. You know, it's interesting how all of us can try to pump up our sense of identity through pride. And, and pride is like a basketball that's got a gash in it, and you're trying to pump it up. It leaks. And the more we try to focus on ourselves, the more empty we are. You will never have a sense of identity by simply getting people to affirm you or pay attention to you, because frankly, friends, all that does is ruin your relationships with them. One of the most horrible things that can happen in a family or a marriage is two people trying to pump up their empty sense of self from each other. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Pride makes us a narcissist. And, and Narcissus was a, was a mythological god who looked at his face in the water and actually wound up dying of starvation because he couldn't get over looking at himself. Friends, I want to tell you, that's not where your identity can come from. Humility means I know who God is and I know who I am and not, and therefore I can find my identity in God. So John now also has a sense of significance. A clear view of your identity focuses on who you are. 
So they ask him the question, who do you say you are? I love verse 23. John says, I am the voice. I know there's a TV show called The Voice. That's not what he's talking about. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John said, I'm a voice, meaning I am a prophet of God. I'm God's spokesperson. And I am also the forerunner of the king who goes before to prepare the way. You know, when the president of the United States is going to go someplace, there are other people that have to go out in front for security and for all the different things that have to happen when he shows up. And before a king would come to a certain city, there had to be a preparation for that. And John says, I am the forerunner as a prophet of the king of kings. That's what I am. But notice, please, what he says. As the prophet Isaiah said, John found his significance and his identity in the Word of God. He's quoting here Isaiah 40, verse 3. And by the way, the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, one of the minor prophets, also speaks about John the Baptist, Malachi 3.1. And John the Baptist says, I have a sense of my identity from the Scriptures. My sense of significance comes from the Word of God. So friends, um, one of the interesting things about the Bible the Bible is actually called a mirror. It's also, so it gives us that sense of who we are and who God is. Look at these verses of Scripture on the screen. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, progressively from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So keep that verse up there for a moment. I want us to kind of unpack this. This is at the end of a chapter where Paul is teaching about the new covenant relationship we have with God. And he's contrasting it with the old covenant under Moses. And he said, you know how Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had been in the presence of God worshiping. And as he came down, his face radiated the glory of God scared everybody, so he had to cover his face. He says, now listen, you have a greater glory and a greater transformation. He says, you're looking into the mirror, and I believe it's referring to the, the Bible as a mirror, and you're seeing the glory of God. And as you see the glory of God, you are being transformed. Same word was used of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, you are being changed from the inside out, changed in form. By the way, it's the same word that is used in science for a, uh, a tadpole becoming a frog or a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Same word, transformation. You're being transformed progressively from glory to glory as you look at God. Friend, your sense of significance always has to come from who you are in Christ and who he is. So we look into this mirror and we see God. Look at the second passage, James 1, to 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently on his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who, who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here... James is saying the Bible is a mirror that shows us ourselves. 
Something that I think probably all of us did this morning when we got up before we came to church. You probably went into the bathroom and you looked in the mirror and decided how much damage was done overnight that you had to repair before you came to church today. I mean, I looked in the mirror this morning and I said, oh man, Jim, you got a lot of work to do. you got to shave, you got to brush your teeth, your hair, it just looks wild. You need to, um, and I don't, you know, I don't look quite as good as Nathan does with a, with a spiky look up there. So I had to really address it this morning. You know, when I look in the mirror of the Bible, I see the glory of God. And when I look in the mirror of the Bible, I see myself. And I can draw a solid sense of significance from both. From both. When you see who God is, you are changed. When you see who you are, you recognize where you need to change. That's why, by the way, we have the, the, the Bible reading guide that uh, we handed out. And in 10 weeks, you can read through the Gospel of John because we're trying to help you understand that getting into the Bible daily is not just a good idea, it's absolutely necessary for your identity. Because you only find out who you are here. You find out who God is and you're changed through worship. You find out who you are. That's why when I read my Bible daily, when I, I just have two questions I ask. Lord, show me who you are. I need to see you and worship you. And show me who I am so I can see where I need to change. I want to look in the mirror and find my significance there. There was a movie that came out recently called Overcomer. I don't know how many of you saw it, but I just want to tell you, it was a really an outstanding movie. It tells a story of a young lady who was wonderfully and, and uh, converted and, and trusted Christ as her Savior and her life was changed. But it goes on then to talk about how her identity began to change as she began to dig into the Word of God. The, the book behind the movie is uh, the book called Defined. And it takes the book of Ephesians and actually helps you identify what should your identity be defined. Your identity in Christ. Because friends, it's only when you find that, that you have a mirror that is not a funny house mirror, but an accurate representation of who God is and who you are in him. You ever notice um, that a telescope that's able to see stars and galaxies and planets that you can't see with your naked eye, has mirrors in it. It allows us to see reality that we can't see with the naked eye. Interestingly, a microscope allows us to see reality that is so small that you can't see it. It's still part of reality, but you can't see it, but there's mirrors in that microscope. A telescope, microscope, shows reality that you can't see. Friends, when I look through a Bible scope, I get to see God. When I look through a Bible scope, I get to see me. And I get to draw a sense of significance that the world doesn't give me and it can't take away. Not based on my occupation, not based on my age, not based on what I do, not based on my marriage or my kids, not based on any of those things. It is based on who I am in Christ. And it changes everything. John had a sense of humility because he knew who he wasn't. He had a sense of significance because he knew who he was. And he had a sense of purpose because he knew who Christ was and his calling in life. Look, um, look what happens. They, they then ask another question to John. Go down to verse 25. He said, why then are you baptizing? And what authority are you doing that? If you're not Christ, and you're not Elisha, and you're not the prophet, 
then why are you doing this? Under what authority are you doing this? What's your, what's your sense of calling? What's your purpose? John quickly says, I'm baptizing with water. Very interesting. That's kind of the end of him talking about himself here. He said, but among you stands one that you don't know. He came to his own and his own received another. Talking about Jesus. In verse 27, he said, this one is coming after me. John's ministry as a forerunner was already taking place. And he said, the strap of his sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John said, in humility, he said, even as I talk about my purpose, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandal and take it off. That's a very different take on a sense of self. He goes on and describes it down in verse 29. He said, Jesus was the Lamb of God, the one who fulfills all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. He takes away the sin of the world. He, in verse 30, he says about Jesus, he's the one who ranks before me because he was before me. He's the eternal Son of God. John said in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven on him at his baptism. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ who is prophet, priest, and king. And later, in verse 33, he said, I'm baptizing with water, but when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. John is simply reflecting the light here. He's bearing witness to the light. He's saying, you want to know what, on what authority I'm doing this baptism thing? Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you who he is. He said, he is the one that you don't know. He is the one whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one before me. He is the one the Spirit came upon. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Go with me over to John chapter 3, just to fast forward here to another conversation that ties to what we're talking about. John chapter 3 and verse um, 22, Jesus and his disciples are in the Judean countryside, and he, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing, and John is also baptizing, verse 23, because he'd not been yet put in prison. In verse 25, there's a discussion between some of John's disciples and the Jew over this purification of baptism. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, is talking clearly about Jesus. Look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Here's the point. They're saying, John, do you realize that Jesus' Gallup poll is increasing, that his notoriety, the crowds following him are larger and yours are kind of heading down? And John answered him and he said, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. In other words, Jesus' growth and the, the momentum of his ministry is happening because of God. He says, you yourselves bear witness to me that I said, I'm not the Christ I've sent before him. And then he uses this great illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom, or the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He's saying, Jesus is the bridegroom, and I'm the best man. Now, friends, I want you to know, I have done a lot of weddings over the decades that I've had the privilege of serving God. I've lost count of how many weddings I've done. But I've never, in a wedding that I have performed, ever had the best man who's standing alongside the groom walk in front of the groom and start talking and taking over the service or pushing the groom out of the way and standing where only the groom should be. Matter of fact, if anybody tried that, I would tackle them and they'd be gone. Because in a Jewish, in a Jewish wedding, it was even more so because an American wedding, it's all about the bride. 
in a Jewish wedding, I want to tell you, it's all about the groom. And so John is saying, you think I'm concerned about Jesus' popularity eclipsing mine? Let me get this straight. He said, he's the bridegroom. The church is going to be his bride. I'm the best man. It's all about him. I'm rejoicing that he's getting known. John ends with this verse, verse 30. He must increase, and I must decrease. My friends, if you don't get that, that your sense of identity does not come from making much of you or drawing attention to you or saying, here I am, all you lucky people. It doesn't come from that. Your sense of identity comes from he must increase. I must make much of Christ because that's my purpose in life. You were created to be an image bearer of a God whose glory is to shine in your life and to reflect to other people. It's not about you. Your identity is not about you. Your identity is about Jesus. You cannot have a solid basis for a sense of self apart from the triune God who created you in his image, who redeemed you through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, and who indwells you by the Holy Spirit. And the more you try to say, I must increase, the more self-defeated you're going to be in life and relationships. It is only as a worshiper, as a God-glorifier, that we find purpose and meaning in life. We exist for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. Do you understand that? Teenagers that are here, students, tremendous pressure on you to find a sense of identity from your peers, from social media, from having a date next weekend. College students, your grades, and, and, and who you hang out with, whether you're with that in crowd on the campus. I just want to tell you something. Don't root your identity in that. That will lead to brokenness and pain in your life, and you'll make a bunch of decisions you shouldn't make. But when you root your identity in God, you have a sense of confidence and significance and humility, and you sense your purpose because of that. And nobody can shake that. Nobody can take I'm not saying it's easy, but I want to tell you it's real. It's real. Where are you drawing your sense of identity from? I'll tell you, every once in a while, I like to go and hear a really good symphony. Now, I like all kinds of music. I have a very, very wide musical taste. But every once in a while, I like to hear a really good symphony. I wasn't always that way. I was raised on a farm in upstate New York and went away to college, and one of my mentors was teaching a class on the fine arts. And he said to us one day in class, the worst thing as a Christian you can be is a cultural clod. Whatever that was, I didn't want to be one. So started taking an interest in the fine arts, and one of that was to go, I remember the first symphony I ever went to, the Philadelphia Philharmonic Symphony. It was absolutely amazing. So whenever I get a chance, I like to just go and hear a good symphony. And, and that's why this story just stood out to me. One of the most celebrated conductors of the 20th century was a man named Arturo Toscani. And uh, he was just brilliant as a conductor. In the book David Irwin wrote, Dictators of the Baton, he describes how the members of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, he was actually practicing with them. 
one of the greatest orchestras in the entire world. So he's practicing with all of these gifted musicians. And it's just a rehearsal. It's not even a performance. But because of his ability as, a, as an orchestra conductor, they rose to their feet and cheered for Toscani. And there was a lull in the ovation, and tears are running down his face. And he hands, puts his hands in the air and he says, it isn't me, it's Beethoven. It was Beethoven's Ninth, ninth Symphony. It isn't me, it's Beethoven. Toscani is nothing, it's Beethoven. You want a clear sense of self? Like John the Baptist say, it isn't me. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And humility, genuine humility, by knowing who you're not. And in significance, because finding in the Bible, the Word of God, who you are. And then with purpose, saying, it's all about the God who created me, who redeemed me, who indwells me. He must increase, and I must decrease. That, my friend, is where you will find a true sense of identity that this world can't shake and nobody can ever take away from you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, forgive us for our pride and for looking in funny house mirrors to try to get a sense of who we are. Looking into a broken world and broken people and trying to make sense of our identity. Forgive us. We confess our pride. We confess that we've cared more about the opinions of men than about the worship of God. God, we come back to you saying that you've created us in your image that we exist for you, for relationship with you, to reflect you, to glorify you. Remind us who we're not. May we walk before in humility that we may have a deeper experience of your grace. May we walk before you in significance because we root our sense of identity in your word, in the mirror of your word, as we see you and worship you, as we see ourselves and are changed. May we have a sense of purpose that's beyond anything that we do or claim that you must increase and we must decrease. God, before the watching world, before one another, in our homes, in our small groups, in our church, and where we work, may we reflect your glory because we have been created and redeemed and indwelt for that purpose. In Jesus' name we pray.